Welcome to On Jordan, a podcast on the latest developments in Jordanian politics, featuring interviews with experts from across the Hashemite Kingdom. My name is Aaron Magid, a former Oman-based journalist now in Washington. An amendment passed a few weeks ago adding the term Jordanian women to the country's constitution has drawn attention to the ongoing campaign for women's rights in the Hashemite Kingdom. While Jordan has one of the highest percentages of female university graduates among Arab states, the New York Times notes that 86% of Jordanian women are absent from the country's workforce. According to the World Bank, that is the highest rate for a country not at war. In a bid to improve gender equality on a political level, Jordanian government officials have instituted a 15-seat quota in the kingdom's parliament. At the same time, many women's rights activists say more needs to be done in the legal sphere and point to the law banning Jordanian women from passing down citizenship to their children when married to a foreigner even when the children are born on Jordanian soil. For an in-depth discussion on women's rights in Jordan, it's exciting to welcome Canada's ambassador to Jordan, Danica Pati, to the podcast. Prior to her current post, she also served as head of the political section in Jordan from 1999 until 2002, and as Canada's ambassador to Thailand from 2016 to 2019. Thank you for joining us, Ambassador. Well, thank you very much for the invitation. So in what aspects of women's rights has Jordan most improved in recent years? Yeah, so I'm really glad you chose to lead with this question, because I think often uh, we talk uh, about what is still missing, what areas of women's rights still need to be improved. And I think there's something instructive about looking at where we've come from and where there have been improvements. I'm not, however, trying to argue that there isn't a lot that still needs to be done for women's rights. Jordanian women experience a lot of obstacles, obstacles to their full participation in the workplace. They suffer from fairly high rates of gender or sexual-based violence and suffer that often alone and in silence and are generally expected, even if they're fully employed, to handle the childcare burdens and, uh, and their housework without help from the men in their lives. But still, I think if we reflect on the successes, there's something quite instructive uh, and anyone who wants to know more about it could also perhaps uh, look at uh, Rana Husseini's recent book Years of Struggle. As you mentioned I was first posted to Jordan 20 years ago so I have this kind of snapshot from 20 years ago and then fast forward to current events and I think that it, it over that time frame there have clearly been improvements and this I think attests to the strength of the women's movement this core group of tenacious, um, capable women, and also the fact that societal views on women and women's roles have shifted. Uh, we often hear, of course, that Jordan is a very traditional society. I often hear that when I talk about women's equality, but I, I think that the past 20 years have indicated that, you know, cultures are not cast in stone and they do adapt and move. So when I returned to Jordan, I was pleasantly surprised by a few things. Firstly, when I lived here before, women needed a male guardian's approval to travel. Uh, 20 years ago, this was a big deal because it, it applied that women were never fully adults with adult agency and rights. And I'm glad to see that that's no longer a requirement. A so-called honor killings, which as you know, is a practice where family members uh, kill a member of the family for real or perceived misbehaviors um, was widely seen as a family uh, matter and you know this was largely a crime committed by male family members against women and very few of, the, of these individuals were ever brought to trial. 
Uh, that's not the case today. Uh, the, the state does accept that it has an interest in securing justice for the victims of these killings and that it is a crime. And I think that also reflects a shift in societal views. Another change is Jordan's very progressive uh, labor law provisions on access to daycare for working parents, fathers and mothers, all employers who have more than 15 preschool age children dependent of their employees. I know that's a mouthful, but all uh, employers are supposed to create either an on-site daycare or subsidize access to daycare spots elsewhere. Now this law has not been very fully implemented yet. Uh, so there's a lot of work that needs to be done, but it still is a progressive law. And I'm very proud that uh, the Canadian embassy does implement it. And um, also note that in the case of the Canadian embassy, it's only the Jordanian mothers that are seeking that assistance. So there still is, I think, a real sense that childcare is a woman's job uh, here. Now, women's rights are an important part of Canada's foreign policy. What tangible areas is the Canadian Embassy in Amman focusing on regarding women's rights in Jordan? Yeah, so thank you for that question. This is a global policy for Canada. We have what we call a feminist uh, foreign policy, and that, of course, includes our development uh, and international assistance portfolios. Firstly, I want to say we try to align behind the goals of, the, of women's organizations themselves. Local women's human rights activists are, of course, best placed to know uh, what their priority should be and to know what's possible in the current context. We have programs that benefit only women and girls. And then we have programs where uh, the beneficiaries would be everyone or a bigger group, but where the, we make sure that women and girls do benefit. So some examples of the former, uh, we support a women's entrepreneurial incubator uh, in Amman and we fund vocational training for women uh, in vocational training centers in Urbid. Uh, we support mentorship for women uh, getting into politics. Uh, we support training for women in the police and in the Jordanian Armed Forces. And one example is we have funded and provided medical and firearms training for women police officers. And we support programs to support women at risk of gender and sexual-based violence, including uh, Syrian refugees. Uh, we, our biggest development program is education, and of course, uh, we work with the Jordanian Ministry of Education to focus on women and girls. And we also promote uh, non-traditional employment in other areas. So we had a solar, um, micro-solar uh, project in the north, and we trained women to be technicians to install and repair those, uh, those solar uh, systems. Now, approximately 85% of Jordanian women are absent from the workforce. What explains this very high number, even as many Jordanian women graduate from universities? Yeah, it is a very high number. And what's interesting is that number is almost as high, regardless of the educational attainment of women in Jordan. So, for example, it was recently published that 82% of women university graduates are unemployed. Um, Going back 20 years ago, women were far less than half of the university students in the kingdom, but now they're slightly over 50%. So we have seen an increase in what we would have often considered a feeder system for employment, uh, where you have 
more women being educated at higher levels, and yet that's not translating into employment for them. I'm I, I think an interesting area of research uh, might be to look at what switched in Jordan to make it more acceptable for young women to go to university and vocational training institutions after high school. And I suspect that there are many variables, but one may be uh, that there's been a clear growth in access to post-secondary opportunities outside Amman and Jordan, and that it is more acceptable uh, for many families to send their, their young women uh, to university if those universities are closer to home. And I think this suggests a path forward to improving women's uh, participation in the workplace. One of the lasting uh, impacts of the pandemic could be greater access for people to work locally or from home. And perhaps this will open up new opportunities for women uh, to gain employment. Indeed, I've seen some examples of this. Uh, I visited a garment factory in a small town in Mafra, where most of the employees are Jordanian women. Um, by bringing the factory to that community, uh, the in, the private sector uh, owner had access to a pool of talent and those women could enter the workplace. They, they would not have been, it would not have been possible for them to, to have gone elsewhere in the kingdom to come to Amman, for example. And even during the lockdown phases, the early phases of COVID in 2020, there were some IT jobs created here, uh, including uh, jobs for women because those jobs were being done from home. Now, much attention was given to the constitutional amendments passed in January, adding the term Jordanian women. How significant was this measure? I think for Jordanian women, it's a symbol of uh, being directly and explicitly included uh, in the constitution. I think it's easy. Sometimes people underestimate the value of symbolism, of, of feeling included. So potentially fairly, fairly significant of for women. I know there was, of course, some controversy around it. Uh, we had something similar in Canada with our national anthem, which used to have um, a, a lyric that referred only to the sons of, of Canada and not uh, the women of Canada. And uh, it was important to me personally when, when that was changed uh, as well. Now, how has the pandemic impacted Jordanian women? I think overall, the pandemic has, of course, been hard on everybody, but particularly hard for Jordanian women. And, and I'm concerned that some of those consequences of the pandemic could also be long lasting. And of course, around the world, we've seen increased uh, incidents of uh, sexual and gender based violence, especially during the periods when people were confined to their homes. And Jordan had quite long periods of lockdowns, including uh, weekend lockdowns. Women being at home with their abusers, of course, was a kind of a recipe for increased violence. Many organizations tried to help, but limitations on movements in the first six to 10 months of the pandemic made that very difficult. And of course, many women don't report in any event, they, they just feel a deep sense of shame and reticence. Um, there are indications that women were more likely to end up jobless as a result of the pandemic. Youth unemployment uh, in Jordan is just short of 50% now, 
Um, and so young women suffer this double whammy of being both young and therefore disadvantaged in the workplace and female. Um, and the government's response to the pandemic, especially its focus on long periods of school closure, was really predicated on a notion that mothers are always available to do more, to do more with childcare, to do more to educate their children, and that if that meant they had to leave the workplace, well, that was a, an acceptable price. Uh, since the start of the pandemic, indeed, there's only been four months of in-person learning in schools. Currently, the schools are on a prolonged winter break, and we hope that the schools will resume on February 20th. That's the date uh, the government has announced. I think crises often illuminate biases and assumptions. And in Jordan, um, there was also a, a bias to protect women. Uh, by limiting their freedom of movement for longer than those limits were imposed on men. For example, women working in local municipalities uh, in the early days of the pandemic could not get permission to leave their homes to help uh, their local residents, but their male colleagues could. I know that those women did the best they could uh, to, to do their jobs, and some of them are very proud of the job that they did, but my fear is that that response, the differentiated response uh, between male employees and female employees in municipalities will make employers less likely to want to hire women uh, because they might be sent home uh, when they're needed the most. Now, Jer Jordan currently has a quota for female representation in parliament. Has this been sufficient ensuring adequate female representation in Jordanian politics? I should have mentioned the women's quota earlier because I think it was a, generally a positive development uh, under the women's quota, 15 seats in the current lower house uh, is allocated to women MPs. Women are free to run for, for other seats, for open seats. But the fact is few women in Jordan have ever been successful at getting one of those open seats. The bar to entering politics is very high for women. And also there's a lot of cyberbullying that happens um, that women who want to enter political life have to be prepared to accept. Now you asked whether the women's quota is acceptable or is sufficient. No, of course it isn't sufficient. I mean, 15 women don't have enough time, heft, or horsepower to ensure that there's consideration given in all the laws and policies and debates on the impact on women. And we can't reasonably assume or expect that those 15 women are all going to want to focus mainly on issues related to women. I mean, they're a diverse group with diverse interests. But I'd also turn the question around and ask, has it been an important step forward? And there, I think the answer is absolutely. Without it, there would have been times where there would have been no women in Jordan's lower house. I think the admission of the importance of having more women in politics was clearly articulated by the recent political uh, modernization uh, proposals that are now being debated um, in parliament. If those new laws, political party and election laws are passed, it will increase the women's quota by one seat. And more significantly, it will require access to political parties for women in order for political parties to be certified, they would have to have women members and political party lists will also have to include uh, women candidates. So the government's intent is to clearly provide more space for women in political life in Jordan.
And last question, pivoting to your overall service as Canadian ambassador to Oman, what has most surprised you about Jordan? Yeah, I don't know if it surprised me or it was just a reminder of how great this country really is. But a couple of weeks ago, my husband and I were got lost. Google Maps doesn't always work as well as maybe it should. And we were not able to find where we were going outside of Amman. So we pulled over to check the map as one does. And, you know, people stopped, tried to help, offered us coffee and tea, invited us into their homes. Maybe because we don't get lost as much any longer because normally we can use uh, apps uh, to get us to where we're going. But I had forgotten and therefore was really pleasantly surprised to see just how warm, helpful and friendly Jordanians are to complete strangers. It was really lovely. And one more thing, if I may, I learned recently and was surprised to learn that Jordanian women were first allowed into the uniformed military in Jordan in 1950. And I think that's a very surprising date. Um, now their roles were of course very limited but there is a long and proud tradition of Jordanian women uh, serving their country in the armed forces far longer than I think most people expect. Well, thank you very much, Ambassador. Really appreciate your time. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity and thank you for this podcast. I really enjoy listening to it. That was Canadian Ambassador to Oman, Donna Kapaki. Here's what else you should know this week. On February 12th, Jordan's foreign ministry urges citizens to leave Ukraine in light of the ongoing conflict with Russia. A day earlier, Ayman Safadi, Jordan's foreign minister, said that any war in nearby Europe will have its consequences on the region, emphasizing the Hashemite Kingdom's support for diplomatic efforts to resolve the crisis. In other news, Jordanian security forces arrested at least nine political activists across the kingdom earlier this week. With unemployment among Jordanians standing at around 23%, according to government data, Taylor Locke, an Amman-based journalist, wrote, it's a clear sign that these non-ideological independent activists in governorates and villages, not Islamists, are perceived as a greater threat to the state because people listen when they speak. Taylor Locke added, Jordan's Iraq activists ground their speech in nationalist language rooted in perceived economic grievances and complaints of corruption. That is much more potent than the narrative Islamists, whose ideological rhetoric is unfocused and scares average Jordanians away. Before I go, if you're a diplomat listening to the podcast, perhaps in Jordan's embassy in Moscow or Turkey's embassy in Amman, and would be interested in being featured as an expert guest during a future episode, please reach out to me on Twitter at Aaron Magid or via email aaron.magid1 at gmail.com. Finally, please subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to be notified of new episodes. And feel free to listen to previous week's episodes on Jordan's Muslim Brotherhood with Professor Vogmakers and Oya Rodtawi's analysis on the Hashemite Kingdom's Water for Energy deal with Israel. Thanks for listening.